0: Today we're going to talk about fulfilling psychological needs. that um, Western culture or Western psychology has a kind of prejudice against psychological needs uh, let's imagine that a person is studying for exam and he gets a headache but really... Crashing pit. And he has an aspirin. So he has to go to the pharmacy to get aspirin. He has to. goes to the pharmacy and says, in Israel there's a line, you know, people are cutting your head in line. By the time he gets the aspirin, goes home and takes the aspirin, starts to take effect. He's lost an hour. How does he feel about the lost hour? Does he feel guilty? I gave in. I was weak. I, uh, I don't think so. Headache's a headache. but Now let's imagine a person studying for an exam and he's just crashingly bored. How much medieval French poetry can you take? And he knows that an hour's turn in the park would revive his flagging spirits and uh, his interest in the subject, <laughs> that's possible. And he takes a turn in the park. I think he's much more apt to feel guilty. So it was bored. So what? Get a grip on yourself. The race is not to the weak and lazy. Because boredom's just a psychological need. Whereas a headache, that's, that's really serious. That That's a, that's a physical thing. Imagine, by contrast, if you got the headache in the middle of the exam, would you take an hour off the exam time to get the aspirin? Probably not. It just, just tough it out because in three hours the exam is over. So the, exam, the headache is not something that's impossible to work with, but we are much more forgiving of ourselves when it's a physical need than when it's a psychological need. Another example, a person in his house falls, has a crashing uh, pain in his ankle, finds that his ankle won't support his weight. It might be broken. He needs to have an x-ray. Who would he call? To ask to drive him to the hospital for an answer. I think there would be quite a wide range of people whom he would feel comfortable to call upon. Now imagine the same person discovers that his brother has been kidnapped by Al-Qaeda. they're holding him for ransom. And he's distraught. He's psychologically distraught. And he just doesn't want to be alone. would call the same range of people just to come and be with him as he would to be taken to the hospital for an x-ray or would it be a smaller group of people, would he expect it would be harder for the other person to understand. I think we, we have a prejudice against our psychological needs just on the grounds of the psychological. We tend to take them less seriously and we expect others to take them less seriously. Now, it is interesting that you cannot find this prejudice in any Jewish sources. The Jewish sources, a need is measured by its um, intensity, what will happen if you deny the need, what will be the damage uh, if you deny the need, but whether the need falls into the physical category, or falls into the psychological category, plays no role whatsoever in assessing what should be done on the basis, for the sake of that need. Let me give you some examples. The Mark Suba says, when you give charity, on the one hand, you must take all take care of a person's needs. On the other hand, you are not obligated to enrich the person, just as needs. Then the Gemara says that may include purchasing a horse for this person and hiring a servant that should accompany him and go before him to announce his presence. A horse and a servant. And indeed, the Gemara says that once hello had responsibility to some poor person in his town couldn't find a servant who was willing to be hired for that purpose so he, hello played the role of that servant. Now, if we are told that you're not, uh, it's not part of charity to enrich the person, purchasing a horse and providing a servant does sound like above and beyond basic needs and the explain that so we are talking here about a person who grew up in wealth and now has lost it and because he has lost it, he has no self-confidence, he has no optimism, he has no joie de vivre Ugh, there I am quoting the French strike that from my vocabulary he has no joy in life uh, he's depressed and for that sake you could spend charity money to purchase him a horse and hire a servant because uh, tending to his psychological needs is as much a part of charity as tending to his physical needs and again the category whether psychological or physical makes no difference whatsoever it's rather a matter of the severity of the need uh, there are people who are starving if they don't get food they're gonna die there are people who are suicidal. And if they don't get psychological help, they're going to die. So from my point of view it's the difference that one is physical and the other psychological. Denying the both puts them in the danger of dying that they get equal treatment. And so it is across the board. Ah, you'll tell me, but this guy grew up in luxury. His problem now is that he can't adjust to normal circumstances should we use charity money to feed his addiction to luxury? And the answer is that you break a person from an addiction gradually. You gradually reduce the addicted materials. If you don't, you are in danger of really breaking the person. Really injuring the person. And so in the meantime, you will indeed use charity money to purchase for him what would be for others luxurious items, but for him are psychological necessities. The Gemara Shabbos considers the appropriateness of an operation to remove a blemish from the face. Okay, I don't want to go into this part of it. It's considered appropriate for women, not appropriate for men. Men shouldn't be that concerned about their appearance. I'm just saying that so I don't be misunderstood. What I'm interested in is this. The Gemara says if the blemish on the face causes a person pain, then he certainly can have the operation. Trespass asks, when the Gemara says pain, pain justifies the operation, would the Gemara include embarrassment? The pain that the person feels is that he's embarrassed. When the Gemara says pain, does it include psychological pain? And Trespass says, of course it does. Pain is pain one I says pain, psychological pain, is just a natural part of that category. The Rambang, in his introduction to Avos, which is eight chapters long, in the fifth chapter he discusses the principle of letting all your actions be for the sake of heaven. How would such a person eat, says the He would eat foods that would contribute to his health and to his strength, not foods that his palate enjoys necessarily. Then the Rambam says, what happens if a person loses interest in food to the point that he's not getting adequate nutrition? For such a person, says the Rambam, we should hire gourmet chefs to prepare the most attractive, tantalizing foods so as to induce him to eat enough to provide himself with adequate nutrition. This is not anorexia, as you can tell from the description of the solution. Then the Rambam goes on to say, there are certain types of depression that are brought on by aesthetic deprivation, a person who is surrounded by drab, a drab and ugly environment such a person is in danger of depression and therefore money should be spent to provide him with a steady diet of beauty so as to protect his psychological health now the album here puts the two points in juxtaposition food for nutrition and aesthetics to avoid uh, depression putting them back to back means he sees them as Instances of the same general principle, caring for your needs. And then the Rambam goes on to say, A person, all of whose actions are for the sake of heaven, is not going to sew golden threads into his clothes, nor paint golden murals on the walls. And the reader says, Of course not, that's just a total waste. And then the Rambam says, Unless and the reader says unless I mean there might be times when for the sake of heaven a person would sew gold threads into his clothes and paint golden murals on the walls and then the says yes and the person is in danger of depression and this is what is necessary to supports your psychological health, and it would be appropriate to sew the threads into your clothes and paint golden murals on the walls. Which shows you again that this is taken with absolute seriousness. The idea that investment in your psychological needs is just as valid and as appropriate as investment in your physical needs. These sources prove that it's true, and for those who have a little experience, you will notice I didn't use any Hasidic sources because people have a certain prejudice against Hasidic sources, they think they're sort of soft. So I use the Gemara, I use the Bishonim. I think not These sources prove that it's true, but they don't explain why it's true. But those who have a mind for logic, that's an important distinction you should think about in general, the difference between proving and explaining. There is a source that does explain why. And this is an essay by one of the tells of Rosh in a collection called Shirei Das this particular essay is called which means roughly draw a line around your feet draw a circle around your feet and here's what the author says in the Talmud it states that a person a man who stops learning Torah for no valid purpose is as if he worshipped idols a man who stops learning Torah unnecessarily is as if he worships idols. And the author spends five pages proving that this statement was meant literally, it wasn't meant just as a hyperbole or poetry. But then the author addresses the main question. One word in that statement desperately needs a definition. Which word? Unnecessarily. He stops learning Torah unnecessarily as if he worships an idol. What counts as an unnecessary cessation of Torah study? What would count as a necessary cessation of Torah study? Where's the line? How do you draw the line? The author says to the reader, you will tell me that the boundary line will be brought, should be drawn biologically. Do I have to stop studying Torah sleep? Yes, because otherwise I won't be able to study Torah. That so stop studying Torah to eat? Yes, because otherwise I won't be able to study Torah. That so to stop studying Torah to work? Yes, if I am cursed by being uh, less than independently wealthy, and therefore I won't be able to eat or sleep unless I work, so I'm going to have to go to work. But you, the reader, will tell me that I stop studying Torah only when my biology forces me to. Says the author, that's wrong. That's wrong, capital W. That's not the correct criterion. The correct criterion, says the author, is this. Every person should feel positive, confident, optimistic, happy, satisfied, joyful, upbeat, proactive. Jargon, jargon. All those lovely things. Everybody should have an ideal emotional state. And anything you need to do to promote that emotional state is called necessary cessation of Torah study. Necessary. What would you need to do? asks the author. To feel happy, optimistic, uh, strong, self-confidence, positive, etc. Says the author. One needs aesthetics, like the Rabbim said, and relaxation, normal, relaxed conversation. Not just what did you learn to the shift today, what new Muslim insight did you have today, but how do you feel, whether you're from home, you know, other such relaxed items? Aesthetics, relaxation, conversation and contact with people, and physical pleasure some measure of each of them is necessary to feel happy, optimistic, joyful, positive, confident, optimistic, strong, and therefore stopping Torah study in order to engage in those activities so as to promote that emotional state is necessary cessation of Torah study. Therefore it's fully justified. Now the author says, what have I done? I have expanded the boundary of acceptable indulgences. You might have thought that it's never appropriate to play tennis. But if you are anxious about something, nervous, if your relationship with your chavusa is going from bad to worse, if you're irritable and nasty and sarcastic, and people are getting fed up with you, and you know that by playing a few sets of tennis, especially if you quit then uh, you'll feel much more relaxed and, and happy with yourself, and you'll be much easier and much more accepting of other people, and that will improve your relationships and improve your learning, then it's appropriate to go and play tennis. So I have expanded, says the author, the circle of acceptable indulgences. But still, Still, there are limits. Maybe it might be appropriate to go and watch a baseball game. But five days of cricket is ridiculous. <laughs> That's absurd. Only the lazy British you know, and the poor, uh, the poor empire could put up with that. <laughs> they're ahead by 270 runs. (laughs) Thanks a lot. (laughs) (laughs) wasted hours to Yeah. What what can a run be worth if you're ahead by 270 runs? Anyway, um, there's a limit. Now, says the author, you'll ask me, how should I draw the limit? The limit between acceptable indulgences on the one hand and really gross luxury on the other hand. Of course. The definition of the limit is, don't take something unless you need it to contribute to that ideal emotional state that you're trying to build up. But the author imagines a case like this, here I am, it's June 23rd, 5.30 in the afternoon and I'm sitting in the Dorsim Echbis Medrash, this is eight years ago, without air conditioning, it's hot and dry. Birthday. and really. is Okay, and I'm studying the Mishnah. And here we go. in rokhsim betalis. Two people are holding onto a talis. Sam This one says it's all mine. This one says Coca-Cola. What is it say? What? No, that's not what it says. No, let's go on. There's no mani This one says I found it. There's no mani misasiv. This one says Coca-Cola. Well, I'm thirsty, you know. So to keep it, Coca-Cola keeps, you know, jumping in. Now, should I get a Coke shouldn't I get a Coke? Just a moment now, you know, there are unacceptable luxuries. One has to be careful about this. Is the Coke justified or isn't the Coke justified? I'm a careful person, I'm a serious person, so I've been keeping records. How many days has been since the last Coke? What was the mean temperature? Mean? humidity since the last Coke. How many other drinks have I had since the last Coke? How many average hours have I had? You know, I've been keeping record for 18 months. Coke, yes. Coke, no. Results, consequences, I hold chart, You know, uh, the mean and the distribution of the, and the and the records of error and the delta delta functions. <laughs> I've got the whole thing planned out because service of God is serious, you know. Now, as I'm calculating this Coke to have it or not, how do I feel? Asks the boss. I guess I feel uh, nervous, kind of worried, self-doubting, anxious. So look at my situation now. In order to figure out whether I need to cope, to feel happy, optimistic, strong, confident, I feel nervous, upset, anxious, worried, self-doubting, this is a self-defeating exercise. Said the author, under those conditions, don't calculate. Just take it. Don't calculate. Don't analyze. Just take it. When would you say no? Only when it's obvious or easy to discover that it's too much. Or it doesn't cost. Or it doesn't hurt you. But if the investigation is going to make you worried, don't even do the investigation. Just take it so I think you see that this is being taken very seriously as an important principle now why here's what the the author of of this essay says he says because God wants of us not only quantity of service but quality of service and the quality of your service depends on Feeling happy, self-confident, optimistic, strong, hopeful. You should walk as he says with mitzavei with steps of strength. You should manifest the glory of man. That's the kind of person you should be. That you present yourself as. The quality of your service of God depends upon that emotional state, and God wants high quality service in addition to quantity of service so let's see part of my service of God is in my interpersonal relations the mission says How is it? the Kabbalists call them to save upon the meophos greet each person with a pleasant expression and with a calm and sensitive interaction now if I'm nervous, upset, worried, anxious, self-doubting depressed I can't do that <coughs> so that that area of those it's just not going to be performed, not be performed in the best possible way. Prayer. Prayer is supposed to focus on God. If I'm really worried, I'm likely to be distracted by my worries and not focus on God. Shabbos is supposed to be a time of joy. That's part of the meaning of Shabbos. A person who's worried, anxious, depressed is not going to be able to celebrate Shabbos in the appropriate way, nor with the, with the holidays. Every mitzvah is supposed to be done with joy. You have to do Hashem serve God with joy. If a person is in that negative emotional condition, he's not going to be able to do that. So this is the reason. It's not because there's a mitzvah to be happy. That's a mistake. It is because in order to do all the other mitzvahs the way they should be done, a person needs to be happy. And therefore the need to be happy is a means, not an end, but a means is very important. You know, breathing is also a means. It doesn't mean it's less important. My Rebbe illustrated this with the famous statement from the Talmud, and he gave it a beautiful explanation. When Joseph is in Egypt, Jacob doesn't think he's dead, and mourns for him for more than twenty years, finally Joseph sends a message to his father that he's alive. Jacob is on his way down to Egypt, Joseph comes to meet him, when they meet, the Torah says that they embraced, and Joseph wept on his father's neck. If you read through the Tanakh, you'll find that weeping is very common. Men, weeping is very common. We are terribly inhibited that men... Don't feel comfortable weeping in public, and I think it's psychologically injurious. It's a, it's a, anyway, it says that Joseph wept on his father's neck. It doesn't say anything about Jacob's reaction. Torah is totally silent. So uh, the Talmud asks, "What was Jacob doing?" And it answers, "He was saying the Shema." That's what Jacob was doing, saying the Shema. Now. Uh, we should ask. Say the He hasn't seen his son in 22 years. He heard some short time ago that his son is still alive. He's now going to embrace his son after 22 years. Say the Shema. Okay, you'll tell me. But it was time to say the How long does it take to say Shema? Three minutes? Okay, it's Jacob. 20 minutes. Still, there are three hours in the morning when you can say it. I didn't have to say it. In these 20 minutes. Obviously, Jacob chose these twenty minutes to say the Shema. Why did he do that? Now, here's my everybody's explanation. When a person says Shema, he's pledging allegiance to God. He's accepting upon himself the yoke of the heaven of uh, uh, the, the yoke of heaven upon himself, yoke of the kingdom of heaven. Now, that means he offers himself to God. How much does he offer? All of himself. How much is that? How much is all of himself? It depends upon how much he is. The more he is, the bigger the offer. Now, during those 20 years when Jacob was warning for Joseph, he did not have prophecy. He did not have prophecy because in order to have prophecy you have to be in a state of joy. And he couldn't manage it during those 20 years he said the Shema and each time he said the Shema he offered all of himself to God but there was less of him to offer and therefore the Shema was a lesser Shema now he hears that Joseph is alive and he anticipates embracing him and he anticipates that surge of joy and he says I will have an opportunity to say a Shema that I haven't said in 20 years because I will be more And says, I will be more, the Shema will be more. And that's what he wants to do with that moment. He wants to take those new, recovered powers and use them to say Shema that he hasn't said. This is an illustration of the idea that the quality of the mitzvah that you do depends upon this psychological state. And therefore, building the psychological state is is a, a, a responsibility. It's a responsibility for the sake of. Doing that mitzvah in a better way. Uh, I'm aware of certain examples of contemporary great people. I'm not at liberty to use their names, because I didn't hear it from them, I heard it from those who knew them. But I'm talking about the top of the line, really top of the line. I have an acquaintance, an American fellow, who was at the uh, beach in Tel Aviv, the religious beach, separated beach. And he saw an old gentleman sitting in a beach chair, a gentleman with a long white beard, just sitting there in a beach chair. He never went into the water, no children or grandchildren around him, just sitting there in the beach chair, watching the ocean. So this fellow is an American and hasn't got any manners or any sense, and he walks over to the older gentleman and says to him, what are you doing here? I see you just sitting on the chair doing, you know, like doing nothing. You know, what are you doing here? So he said, the gentleman on the chair said, I'm a posic. Posic means a religious decisor. Someone who answers difficult religious queries. And I'm telling you, he's really, you know, his name's up there in life. And he said, When you answer practical religious queries, you have to pay very careful attention to details. Little details often make the difference. And so you are making very fine distinctions and going after all of the little details of each case. Periodically, he said, I come to the sea. Because observing the sea restores the sense of the grandeur, the greatness, the largeness of things. And that helps me achieve a kind of psychological balance. Now here's a person who appreciates the aesthetics of the ocean. Anybody who's been to the ocean knows how impressive it is. He appreciates the aesthetics of the ocean and realizes that it can have a salutary psychological effect and chooses it for that purpose so that he'll be able to serve God with greater psychological balance. There is a, a Rosh Hashida. I was told regularly this regularly listens to Mozart because he finds that Mozart creates in a certain mood a mood that he feels is valuable and it's serving God, and therefore he listens to Mozart. There is a letter of the Chazanish in his collected letters, it's letter number 35. Unfortunately, they're not translated sure into English. <coughs> now, From the letter, which is an answer to a student, we can more or less figure out what the student's letter in question was. The student must have written something like this. I'm exhausted. It's coming to the end of one of the trimesters of the Jewish academic year, and I'm exhausted, physically, psychologically worn out. And I know that according to our academic year, there's a vacation coming up. But where does it say in the code of Jewish law that you're supposed to take vacations? Which, simon, which which entry in the Shohan talks about vacations? when to take them, how to take them, where to take them, how long they should be I'm not aware of any such any such element in the Shohan So this student wrote, I feel guilty in taking a vacation on the other hand, I'm exhausted. What should I do? So the Haizun East writes back no, my dear one, he writes, no that there is no sin and no guilt in resting when one is exhausted after all he says why did you get exhausted because it is part of nature that when you exert yourself you get tired and nature he says is just another word for the repetitive constant aspect of God's providence which means that you are tired because God wanted you to get tired just as God organizes the rising and fall, the setting of the sun and the falling of the rain and the growth of the plants, when you believe? he gets tired. It's because God wants him to be tired. And he says it's not appropriate to despise nature, to show contempt for nature, because nature is an aspect of God's will. And therefore, he says, you are obligated to take two weeks of vacation sleep well, he says, eat well, go on tiulim. It's been long enough to know what a tiulim is. A trip, a vacation trip. And he says, your name batola, to multiply matters of batola. Now, you know, People who live in yeshivas are very careful about their speech. The closest thing that a yeshiva person knows to a swear word is batala. Batala means doing nothing, wasting time. The Jewish definition of wasting time is temporary suicide. Because if you're wasting time, you're dead. When the Chazarish says to this yeshiva student, I was inani batala, it's like slapping him in the face. There's no stronger word that the Chazarish could have used. To, to, to shake this person up. Then the Chazanish writes, you wrote me interesting total thoughts in your letter, I'm not answering them. Understand why? Because if the Chazanish will answer them, then the student will go to answer the answers and it will be tied up in the same syndrome again. No, I'm not answering them. And then he says, if you have trouble with this prescription, come here and sure, I'll make sure you keep it. <laughs> so here you have, coming from one of the greatest people in the 20th century, he says, You're obligated to stop learning entirely for two weeks. Stop learning entirely. And then he says, Happy are you that exhausted yourself in the study of Torah. Now, many people exhaust themselves in, sky, in foolishness. You exhausted yourself in the study of Torah. Happy are you that you, that you did that way. Now, I'll mention an application of this which probably doesn't apply to any you directly but it may apply to those you know and here it's extremely important. There are people who have constant care for others. Families who are caring for um, elderly parents or who, God forbid, have uh, sick uh, family members and are giving care to people who need it. The patient Desperately needs the care. The caregiver often is simply exhausted. He has his own responsibilities, other responsibilities, has this responsibility, he's working around the clock and he's exhausted. But to take time off creates a terrible sense of guilt. Because the needy one is so needy. How can I allow myself? I am healthy, thank God. I am functional, thank God. How can I allow myself to neglect even for an hour this person who is so near. Sometimes this is short-sighted because by not taking the the hour off the caregiver automatically reduces the quality of the care. He can't be as sensitive. He can't be as giving. He can't be as attentive because he can't handle it and by taking off the hour he will increase the quality and the ultimate impact of the care. We have friends in South Africa, one of the children uh, severed a finger, they drove to the hospital and they had, at that time before things went from bad to worse, they had a very fine medical establishment and they had three microsurgeons working on sewing his finger back on, reattaching the nerves, reattaching the blood vessels. The surgery took hours. Now they're working there under microscopes, making these very, very fine motions. Every half hour they, they stopped doing the surgery and just walked around the room and stretched their fingers, stretched their muscles, and so on the so But what do you mean? This poor kid is there with his fingers, still severed you know, severed, it's not reattached. And you're walking around the room. But if I don't walk around the room, I won't be able to do the surgery. I just can't do this kind of uh, micro-adjustment continuously without rest in between. So, you have to measure realistically what your psychological needs are so as to get, on the whole, the best possible uh, performance. This means the investment of money and the the use of of, uh, expertise, for the sake of one's psychological needs, just as one would with physical needs, as we said at the beginning. Here, I want to uh, alert you to another symptom of the same uh, prejudice that we started with. Let's say a person got prepared as a broken uh, a broken leg. <laughs> broken leg goes to the hospital and gets uh, a, a cast, and X-rays, and therapy, crutches, wheelchair. Let's suppose a person has a uh, phobia. Um, A phobia for authority. People exercise authority over him and it frightens him and he he can't face it. And therefore it's hard for him to hold a job. It's hard for him to be in in such types of relationships. So we say to him, um, why don't you, you know, get help? He says, let me get help. Do you think I have a problem? That would mean I have a problem. Now that word is very interesting. That word only comes up when it's a psychological matter. No one defines a broken leg as a problem. Ah, he can't walk. That's not a problem. It's not a problem. Just a broken leg. And we'll take care of that, you know. But a phobia? Oh, that would be a problem. I just want to admit that he has a problem. Why? Why? One is dysfunctional, the other is dysfunctional. One has a treatment, the other may very well have a treatment. And if it has a treatment, why not make use of it and improve your life? Because it's psychological and therefore the whole picture becomes clouded with our fears and our, and our prejudices when in fact it simply should not be so. Um, many years ago, a fellow came to me. He's about sugar And he was learning in a cuddle someplace and uh, he was married about five years I think they had two or three children and he saved up enough money to to buy himself a copy of the Talmud I see the religious people get married the wife's parents buy the husband a copy of the Talmud that's that's a regular rule but of course here neither set the parents was religious so they're making it by scratch he's been investing years in learning and he finally has enough money to buy himself his first copy of the Talmud That's a great, joyous event. I remember it. And he says to me, My wife wants to use the money to repaint the apartment. (laughs) How can I convince her that (laughs) buying the dollar is more important than repainting the apartment? So I said to him, Imagine your wife told you that she's having migraine headaches. And the only solution is a medicine that comes from Switzerland and it will take the money that you've saved. What would you say? They said, i headaches? Of course. That's terrible. Of course you have to have uh, medicine for that. So I said to him, your wife is telling you that that uh, unpainted apartment is depressing. And she's there making that home for you and for your children. Why aren't you as worried with her feelings of depression as you would be with her headaches? Similarly, a woman came to me and said, uh, we're married, we have three children, we live and a walk-up. Third floor third story from the from the from the street. And when I go to the Macolas with my three children and have to go grocery shopping, and I have to, it was before that everybody used to deliver today paying five shekels and deliver it to the store. But it didn't used to be that way. And I come home with the three kids, with the stroller, and with all the packages out though, It's exhausting. Shall I call my husband home? from learning like twice a week in the afternoon, to help me with the shopping. So I said to her, it depends upon what the consequences of doing it on your own are. If you tell me every night when I get to bed to go to sleep, I read three chapters of my favorite novel. But on the Right? Night I go uh, shopping, oh, I'm so tired I can only read two chapters. I think, under those conditions, it wouldn't be appropriate to call your husband home. I'm learning. But if you tell me, i finished finish slapping it all upstairs, I'm so tired that I'm irritable to my children, that I can't really invest myself in David Minchut, and uh, I find myself feeling resentful, then yes, indeed, call your husband home, and let him help you with the shopping. It all depends upon the consequences of ignoring the need, and in this case, uh, whether they're psychological or physical, makes absolutely no difference everybody with me so far? Now, one, flying the only and the reconciliation will be finished. I've been saying so far to service the psychological needs. But, but don't we grow? Don't we develop? Should I look forward to always having the same needs won't satisfying them, reinforce them and maintain them, shouldn't I try to develop myself to the point where I don't have the same psychological needs and where I'll be able to do with less? The answer is yes. There is a responsibility to develop. There is a responsibility to try to uh, lessen one's psychological needs. So a certain extent, this happens naturally with maturity and with greater focus but there's a responsibility to do so. The crucial thing is how to do it. And this how to do it applies to all progress, all personal progress and very, uh, in in very particular it applies to religious personal progress. Here's where I am. I want to grow in that direction. Now, how do I take my steps forward? The answer is, I only take a step. If I'm very confident that the step will not disturb my ability to continue functioning. If there is any substantial probability, any substantial danger that taking this step may threaten my ability to continue functioning, I don't take it. Uh, The comparison here is one that I'm sure many of you are familiar with is sports. I'm doing the pole vault and I'm currently jumping 12 feet. I want to qualify for the Olympics, which is an 18 foot jump. That's all right, I'm only 15 years old, so I have time. Now, I ask my trainer, should I put the bar up another two inches or not? The pole vault goes up by two inches. What does a trainer's attitude going to be? If I'm going to risk injuring myself, he's not going to put it up. Because if I injure myself, I'm going to lose weeks or months of training. It's just not worth it. So he's only going to put the bar up when he's quite confident that I will not injure myself and thereby risk my ability to continue training. Here too, if I'm considering taking a step depriving myself of something to see whether I can do without it and thereby make my performance more efficient, I must be very confident that it's not going to interrupt my ability to continue functioning. Because if it does, then my overall progress is going to be much more uh, much more breaking and retarded. When I first came here, 22 years ago, there was a fellow here who told me that he had a terrible, terrible addiction, one which uh, really bothered him. Every week he had to read Sports Illustrated. This for him was, you know, without question, definitely probably. But he had gotten into tomorrow learning, and he said, I really regret the time I've lost to a learning But on the other hand, I really want to read Sports Illustrated. What should I do? So I said to him, how many hours does it take you to read the Sports Illustrated?" He said, two hours. I said to him, if you don't read it, how many hours a week are you going to worry about it? Is it? going to bother you. He said, probably bother me an hour a day. I'm going to be upset about it. So I said to him, read it. You're five hours a week ahead. Now, as it happened, four or five months later, he gave up his subscription. He outgrew it. I felt that in the meantime it wasn't worth fighting the battle, and that he would naturally lose his interest in it. I mean, how many times can you look at the same statistics? <laughs> oh, it's off by five percentage points. your know, something to write home about. Call your friends, send it's, straight it's emails. <laughs> right? have so such It's, it's, it's um, so. But why fight the battle when it's going to be a struggle, and 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 it, you're going to feel it after yourself and worried about it when In a few months, it'll it'll drop off by itself. Same thing is true with any step of progress. A person is contemplating a new Mitzvah. Am I ready? Am I strong enough to take on this new Mitzvah? So in terms of tonight's subject, the first question you have to ask yourself is what will be the sum total consequences? Including the psychological consequences and emotional consequences of taking on this new mitzvah. And this can be very subtle. If I take on a mitzvah which typically in my circle is not done, is this going to stimulate my pride? If it stimulates my pride, is it worth it? Is it worth doing this new mitzvah? And it's going to injure my my personality, which is also a mitzvah? It's one mitzvah against another mitzvah. And both mitzvahs have to be taken seriously but especially if taking the step forward is going to put me under such strain that I'm going to suffer losses in other areas and it's fairly likely that at a certain point down the line I'm going to come to the conclusion that the step was a mistake and I really can't handle it and then I'll have to reverse it and then I will come to question my judgment so I guess I don't really understand what I'm capable of, what I'm not capable of and then a person in a, in a down frame of mind can push it further. Maybe the whole thing isn't right for me. Maybe the whole decision to get involved in the first place wasn't right. He comes to question his involvement altogether, possibilities for his future. It's a downward spiral from taking an over-ambitious step at the outset. The solution is to take small steps. let take small steps. And... This is the last point I want to leave you with. Although these to are the steep, which we'll do on another occasion, every mitzvah can be subdivided. Mitzvahs are not package deals. Every mitzvah can be subdivided, so that if the mitzvah as a whole is too daunting, it's just too much to handle, divide it. About ten years ago, we had a fellow here from Michigan State University for a summer program, six weeks at the end he said to me Shabbos was wonderful. I've never experienced anything like that before in my life and I would like to incorporate Shabbos into my life but I have a problem. I'm at Michigan State University and the number one priority at Michigan State is? Football. Football. Ha! Mm-hmm. Ah, you're, not, you're not part of that world. At Michigan State, number one is football, number two is football, number three is football, number four is parties, and then you know studies about ten, 10 or eleven and he said, uh, football games are Saturday afternoon, and don't talk to me about football. You know, football's, that's different. But on the other hand, Shabbos was very impressive and very moving, and I liked to for Friday. So what should I do? Does a Rabbi say before, right? Shabbos was football. What should we do? <laughs> <laughs> so I said to him, keep Friday night. So far, as I know, there are no football games on Friday night. That's one time they haven't invaded yet. Now, Listen to me, boys and girls. This is very important, I'm going to tell you now. Neither he nor I was fooled. There is only one Shabbos, and it's 25 hours long. Don't give me this baloney. If only God had known about football, he wouldn't have made it for Saturday afternoons. He would have made it for Friday afternoons. You know, poor God couldn't see the future. Leave that to the other movements who, you know, know better than God. What better than Moses? Shabbos is 25 hours, period. We're not reforming Shabbos. But, if you can't keep the whole of Shabbos, keep part of it, keep as much as you can. We're not changing Shabbos, but we're recognizing that a person may have limitations. Can't keep Shabbos every week, keep it every other week, keep it once a month. Do what you can. But David, you picked up that cigarette, that awesome, frightening, you know, devastating book, filled with all that black print. God, say all oh that just the morning prayer was taking about eight hours. So don't say it all. Skip 80% or 90% of it. Indeed, do it the other way. Ask yourself, how many minutes of this can you tolerate? Six will show you what the most important six minutes are. Nine will add three minutes to you. Two, I'll give you something to say for two minutes. Every minute can be subdivided. There's nothing wrong with subdividing it. It's assumed that a person will have to take the gradual steps steps as I said where a person is confident that he can take the step without destroying his equilibrium without his ability to to continue to function and then we take it step by step don't despise small steps don't despise small steps, this is the strategy of the of the evil inclination of the Sun, to say to you you're going to keep one Shabbos out of four that's not worthy of you. You're not a child. You're a strong person, a courageous person. One out of four, that's too degrading for you. Wait until you have the strength to do it, 100%. That appeals to your dignity. It appeals to your honor. And it shovels you into the grave. Because he knows very well. that you're never going to have the strength to do it all once. And that's his way of putting you off. Wait until... The minute the, the voice inside says "wait," that's the alarm bell. You well. Why should I wait? Why should I wait? Why should I do it now? But what? Do it to the extent that you can do it now. Kashrus. How many times have I been told, Rabbi? I can certainly keep kosher at home, but at uh, university, at, socially, at work, I just can't handle it. It's too embarrassing. I'm not going to be able to do it. And the person says. I'm not the kind of uh, person to keep kosher at home and eat right outside. Uh, that's hypocritical. It's not it's not uh, honest. So I'm waiting for that time when I will have the strength to cut a clean break and keep 100% kosher. That's terrible. And what makes it terrible is that only idealistic people, only serious people get caught in this trap. A person who's not serious or idealistic says, well, I do what I'll do with it with innocent with No, this is a person with ideals, who wants to be honest with himself, but he's making a terrible mistake. The correct attitude is, do what you can. You can't keep kosher at home, keep kosher at home. It's too hard for you right now to keep kosher outside, then don't keep kosher outside. Be realistic about your limitations and do what you can. Indeed, a person who becomes kosher at home means 60% of his meals are kosher. Gradually he will find that his his attachment to kashos becomes greater and greater, and that in itself reinforces the motivation, ultimately, to be able to make the break in public and to keep Gosher in public. If he doesn't keep Gosher at home, he may never develop that psychological strength. Um, I'll end with one illustration that everyone who has become about Baal I think, has used, I've used it as well, the standing grand central station. For those of you that know at you are, Station is a big train station. They called 100,000 people. Three blocks. Three blocks. And it's gigantic. It's gigantic. Now, uh, you look at your watch and it's 6.23. And sundown is 6.30, and you have not dabbled, you've not said the afternoon prayers. Uh-huh. What to do now? Walk over to the wall, and start, you know, weaving about it. Looks a peculiar. <laughs> well, of course, in Grand Central Station, <laughs> probably it's at, much attention because there's everything there. You know, <laughs> how peculiar it is, it says uh, something. Um, but still, if you are a dignified person, you just feel kind of funny doing that. Now, there is a solution to this problem, a solution that, as I said, everyone I know has used. So it's in a telephone booth, you put it in a quarter, you make a long distance. Call. I should have already had the boost. Everyone I know has done this. Because they just don't have the courage to stand up there against the wall. They knock on the boots. Anyway. Um, now look, imagine you're standing at Grand Central Station. And somebody comes over to you and he says, look, here's a check for $10 million. I'm going to write your name in it. Just walk over to the wall and we even pop for 10 minutes. What would you do? I don't know about you, but I'd be there like that. <laughs> it wouldn't take me a second. weaving even you think you If somebody said, you nut, what are you doing? I said, I'm earning $10 million. But you have to be, wouldn't you, would you like to be standing here? Every mistake that you does is worth more than $10 million. It has an infinite payback. So really, I shouldn't have any embarrassment whatsoever, David even in public. But it is normal to be embarrassed. And indeed, years ago, when I started out, I was embarrassed too. Today I have no embarrassment whatsoever. I could put on my talus and fill it in the airport, on the airplane, in the train station. I was absolutely innocent. But it wasn't always that way. And it is appropriate then to use the telephone booth solution until you, too, gather the psychological courage to be able to stand up and, and do it without them. Take your limitations seriously, work gradually to overcome them and extend your abilities. Make sure that when you take your steps, it don't threaten your ability to continue to function. That way, you will grow to reduce your psychological needs while you are servicing them to the extent is necessary to be happy, strong, optimistic, hopeful, and confident. Questions?